hello and welcome to this edition of Café Klingendaal, the podcast series of the Klingendaal Institute. My name is Rem Korteweg, I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendaal Institute and I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Dick Sande and Kimberly Kruiver. Dick is senior research fellow and head of the security unit, focusing most of his research activities on security and defense, including capability development, European defense integration, armaments cooperation, industrial aspects. He's really an encyclopedia when it comes to European security and defense issues. And Kimberly is a junior researcher at Klingenau's security unit, and her work mainly revolves around EU security and defense, including CSDP and the EU's latest defense integration initiatives. Today, we are going to talk about NATO. NATO and the NATO summit, or shall I say the NATO leaders meeting. First of all, can I just ask you, why isn't it a NATO summit? Why does it have to be called a NATO leaders meeting? Well, I mean, the idea, of course, was that uh, by making it a leaders meeting instead of a longer summit with a very long communique of dozens of paragraphs with all kinds of decision, it would be easier in terms of preparations and the risk of derailing of the summit would be decreased. That was the aim. I don't think they have succeeded in that because even if it was only a two, three hours meeting, it still made the impression of total chaos. Uh, this was clear in the run-up to the summit when Macron was referring to NATO as brain dead mm. uh, and uh, accusing Erdogan and Erdogan accusing Macron of that he was brain dead and then at the evening of course at the start of the summit dinner the preceding evening uh, it was Trump who went to the camera accused now Macron of being very nasty uh, and sort of destroying NATO, which as such is an interesting aspect because in the past, of course, everybody looked at Trump, who was sort of very negative on NATO. Now suddenly he had to react to Macron and therefore now Trump became sort of a positive factor that's saying, you know, you are nasty about NATO. Nevertheless, all of that made, I think, an extremely bad impression. Uh, it made an impression of chaos. It made an impression of disunity, while, of course, the objective of this leaders meeting which was in the context, of course, of celebrating 70 years of NATO, uh, was to air unity. Mm. Well, it was very clear, and this was, of course, in the headlines of the press, that there was no unity at all. Mm. So the political image we're left with is that the alliance is in a state of chaos. But to be honest, it's not unusual for there to be disagreement between the leaders of the transatlantic alliance. Um, we've seen this for instance, in the context of the Iraq war, but also if you go further back, the alliance has always had disagreements and divergences of opinion. So how bad is it? It is absolutely true that the alliance has had many, many, many crises before from the days of Suez and in the 60s when France left the alliance till the cruise missile debates in the early 80s and so forth. However, uh, we have never had the major ally, the United States, doubting NATO. And that is, I think, new with uh, Trump uh, in the White House. And we have never seen the political leaders openly and in front of the press accusing each other. Now, 
Having said all that, and that is political chaos and that the tone of the music is extremely bad, below that surface, at the level where the military cooperate together, the picture is pretty good, actually. Mm. Since the Will Summit, which is now five years ago, measures have been taken. There is military presence in Eastern Europe, in the Baltic States and Poland and elsewhere. Uh, there is one NATO exercise after the other. There are more American military stationed in Europe at the moment than at the end of the Obama administration. And next year, in 2020, we're going to see the biggest NATO military exercise ever in which a complete division of United States military will be brought into Europe and then exercising. So at that level, I would say at the level of the Pentagon, at the level of the American military, there is still very strong cooperation. And that is the good news. And that should, of course, go on. And the intent, at least eh, what we see in reality from the American military is that they want to go on with that. So we have a very paradoxical yeah. situation with a political leader in the White House who is sort of negative on NATO and, and calling the shots and so forth. But at the lower level, the military cooperation level, things are pretty good. So, but in the, in the context of NATO being an alliance based on deterrence, deterrence is a combination between capability and political will. And what you're saying is that in terms of political will, there might be some difficulties, but in terms of capability, the, the alliance is robust. Were there any concrete initiatives coming out of this leaders' meeting, Kimberly? Um, well, yes and no. So concerning burden sharing, the heads of state agreed to reduce the U.S. contribution to the direct budget, which is also called the common funding. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. now pays as much as Germany, which is 16% of total. However, this budget is relatively small. It is meant for the common cause concerning the uh, headquarters in Brussels. Uh, the real discussion on burden sharing is about the agreement that Dick just referred to. So the fact that the member states should increase their defense spending to 2% of their uh, gross domestic products by 2024. And at present, only 9 out of 29 members have reached their goal. And uh, most of the others do not even have a concrete plan in place on how to reach that 2% target. Um, however, also in line with what Dick just said, the defense budgets of the European allies have risen significantly in the last five years. So at the military level, uh, NATO overall is getting stronger. Right, and but let's just focus on the, the, the glass half empty for a second, the laggards, those that aren't spending 2% of GDP. The Netherlands is one of them. The Netherlands is one of them and is not an unimportant ally, sort of a middle power. But also Germany is far below the 2% target and unfortunately, uh, like the Netherlands, will not reach the 2% by 2024. It was striking that Trump was assembling uh, the countries around him, I think for a lunch or whatever it was, who were paying the 2% and he called them sort of the club of the trustworthy, <laughs> the good allies. In other words, the Netherlands is in the other box, which mm. is the bad allies. Mm -hmm. uh, a very black and white picture, of course, very Trump-like. Uh, but nevertheless, that's where we are today. Uh, and the Netherlands defense budget is nominally rising, of course, but in terms of percentage of GDP, we will never reach the 2% by 2024. Uh, so this will remain an enormous challenge for uh, the Dutch government. To, yeah, go ahead. And to add on that, Ritter stated that the Netherlands is adding, I think, 5 billion to the NATO funding, but this also concerns the common funding. So it's actually, it does not make a significant difference. Well, you have to explain that to me. So uh, what... 
How, how, by how much is the Dutch defense budget increasing? Well, I mean, under, under Rutte, the decision was taken to add 1.5 billion, which only starts, by the way, in 2020. So as of 2020, every year, 1.5 billion extra. But with that increase, the budget will still remain at roughly 1.3% of GDP because the macroeconomic forecast is still that GDP will rise as well. So actually, uh, your increase in the defense budget has to be with a higher percentage than your GDP is uh, increasing. Uh, the same problem exists basically in Germany. The German economy, although at a lower growth rate, is comparable in terms of growth rate to the Dutch. And they face the same problem. If the Germans would spend 2% on defense, they would spend 80 billion uh, euros annually, which would be, I wouldn't say twice the budget of France, but about 1.5 <laughs> times yeah. the budget of France. And it would be more than Russia spending on defense. So we have to think what it means, uh, 2%. And there's another problem, of course, uh, if you go from uh, 1.5 to 2 or from 1.3 to 1.8, mm -hmm. something in between, in one or two years, it's impossible to spend the money uh, because the increase is going too fast. Uh, you have to buy kit, you have to recruit personnel, which is a huge problem in most of the European countries, including in the Netherlands, and that cannot be done in one or two years. It uh, takes more years. Do, but do you think the fact that the Netherlands wasn't invited to join this lunch of the good allies, that that will have focused minds more in The Hague, or are structural reasons that you're describing just now going to be more important in, in terms of dampening the appetite to increase the defense budget by much more? I don't think it will have a significant effect. I think it just, again, portrays an image of uh, disunity within the alliance. Why are only a certain amount of people invited to a lunch of 2%? I don't really see the, uh, the point of that. And I don't think that our prime minister or other prime ministers who don't pay 2% now have the incentive to ask for more defense money in their countries. I think whatever Trump is doing is counterproductive. Uh, so this luncheon with yeah, the, good, exactly. the good countries <clears throat> will be perceived in the bad countries as a very sort of negative act by mm. Trump to name and shame those who are not doing well. Uh, but not doing well, you can put all kinds of question marks there. Eh? Uh, there are countries who are spending 2% on defense, but they're not really delivering the capabilities to NATO. They should. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so you should also look at the output, at what countries are doing in terms of participating in NATO operations, being present uh, at the eastern borders in the Baltic states and so forth. And there, countries who are under the 2%, like the Netherlands, are doing relatively well. Yeah. So this Trump thing of naming and shaming, I don't think has a positive impact, certainly not on the Netherlands. In most of the European countries, Trump has a very negative record. Mm. The latest poll in Germany showed that there is more trust in Putin at the moment than in Trump. Yes. <laughs> so when Trump yeah. is saying something, it will be perceived negatively anyhow, whatever he says. That, that raises another um, set of issues connected to the leaders' meeting, which is apparently there is now a initiative to revisit the political dimension of NATO, or in other words, to try to find ways to strengthen the political dimension. And people talk of setting up a high-level group, a group of wise men and women to assess how the NATO alliance can strengthen itself. What should we make of that? Interesting question, because really nobody knows. Uh, I mean, this should be the answer, of course, to the political disunity in NATO. So let's appoint a group of wise persons uh, who will have one or two years to come up with a good report, and uh, they will give us the answers. It's a bit far away from the political sensitive level of the ambassadors and the politicians and the prime ministers and so forth. 
and we have sort of a timeout. In the meantime, of course, the real world goes on, mm. so you cannot deny that. That's my first remark to that. Secondly, the question is, in terms of substance, what will they come up to? What is the political dimension of NATO? I mean, NATO is a political military alliance. So whatever you discuss in NATO in terms of political, in the end, becomes military. If you talk about the attitude of NATO, the policy of NATO towards Russia, very soon you're in the security dimension, eh? because that's what NATO is. If you're talking about the relationship between NATO and the European Union, there we have the middle ground is security, security and defense. So a purely political role of NATO uh, is extremely difficult to define. Uh, and I think in the end, uh, when this is on the table, and this will be where the group of vice presidents will struggle with in, in, in the months and years to come, is how are you going to narrow that down to something which will give NATO an acceptable agenda, an acceptable middle ground where everybody can agree upon. Uh, and then we will have to discuss sooner or later the problem of the transatlantic relationship and how the balance between Europe and the United States will be reconfigured. Mm -hmm. And you're immediately also talking about what is the new buzzword in Europe's strategic autonomy for Europe. We will have to talk about Turkey uh, and other allies who have become less reliable than in the past. Uh, all of that is, in my view, political, but that also means it's extremely politically sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that will make it extremely, extremely, extremely difficult to agree upon. So what do you expect of the wise persons group, Kimberly? Well, I think it's good that uh, NATO is trying to address its internal rifts and that it's responding with that on Macron's recent comments. But if this group is expected to deliver some sort of solution or guideline in 2021, um, what will happen in the meantime? How will the alliance respond if another ally does something surprising? How do they respond to another black swan? Uh, they don't answer that question for me right now. Yeah, and, and it seems, I mean, it leads to the question also about whether NATO needs a new strategic concept. Hmm. Uh, it seems that every 10 years or so, NATO wants to develop a new strategic concept. There might be a rationale to open that debate now, but it's also risking opening Pandora's box, given the political tensions. I mean, how do you see that uh, that discussion play out, Dick? Yeah, the strategic concept 2010 is completely outdated because we all know that 2014 was the big year of change with the Russian annexation of the Crimea, the start of the uh, unrest and the war in the Donbas area, and so forth and so forth. So I think everybody will agree that NATO needs a strategic concept, but the, the, the problem here is it has been postponed and postponed because of mm -hmm. the disunity in NATO. And this disunity is not only Mr. Trump or is not only President Erdogan. This disunity is also that within the group of NATO countries and particularly inside Europe, there is a difference in terms of threat perception mm. and, and security interests. Uh, the further you travel east, the more Russia is threat number one and to a certain extent the only threat they perceive in the Baltic States and Poland. The further you travel south in Europe and you come close to the Mediterranean shores, the more uh, the Sahel area, the unrest in the Middle East, the conflicts over there and the effects of that in terms of migration, international uh, criminal gangs and so forth. That is their primary security uh, concern. And that will make it extremely difficult to define NATO's security in the 21st century in this 360 degrees approach. And we also see this disagreement in the declaration. At the beginning, when the declaration talks of threats, Russia is the first mentioned in the sentence after which terrorism follows. 
at the end of the declaration, terrorism is uh, mentioned first as a threat and after which Russia follows. So probably during the yeah. debate on how to formulate this declaration, uh, I'm guessing France on the one hand and Germany on the other hand had a proper discussion on how to formulate this. Uh, that's interesting. But, it, uh, but surely, I mean, this plays out in the alliance, but this surely also plays out in an EU context. And the, e, the EU is also trying to develop a stronger security and defense role. Mm. Aren't these the same topics that are debated in NATO? Are they also debated inside the EU? In other words, can the two institutions find a way out of this together? The topics, of course, are the same, but the solutions coming from both organizations are not the same. Mm. And this is, I think, where we need sort of a strategic look uh, at. At the moment we're talking about EU-NATO cooperation, all kinds of nitty-gritty uh, files and subjects which are not really the, the headlines uh, of what it should be. Uh, what we need is to come to a very high-level EU-NATO debate, in the end at the level of the European Council and the NATO summit level, maybe they could meet together somehow, uh, where they define what was called a couple of years ago a new strategic relationship between the EU and NATO. We, we never heard the term anymore today. While the need to have that strategic relationship redefined is more important than ever before. And I can imagine, for example, if you look at the problems in Northern Africa and the Middle East, that you can very easily come to a sort of a division of labor between NATO and the EU. I think the major organization there has to be the EU, because if you think about long-term solutions in mm. Africa and in the Middle East, it is political, economic, and it has to do with development and things like that, where the EU is extremely strong. There is also a military element to it where NATO can help. If you're talking about Russia and the threat coming from the East, and NATO will be the dominating organization, but again, the EU can also do very important things there in terms of its relationship with Russia. Uh, and this is where we need sort of a new EU-NATO bargain at a very high strategic level. I think what we should keep in mind is that NATO is the primary organization for our collective defense and the EU can support NATO in other ways. And that, I mean, it leads to a, an interesting conclusion, if I may, that NATO is talking about setting up a high-level group, exploring how to strengthen its political dimension and the European Union, through the initiative of France and Germany, is talking about setting up a conference on the future of Europe where security is also on the agenda. Perhaps there might be a way to bring those two different debates closer together. Um, because, as I understand you correctly, e the EU and NATO need each other and complement each other. And many of the same issues are talked about in the same, in the same institutions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, although, of course, I think a group of wise persons uh, cannot be compared, of course, to current political leadership. Uh, but it, I think it's good for NATO now to take temporarily a step back and have this group launched and do their work. Uh, but in the meantime, I think also already at the political level, uh, we cannot wait. Things are moving so fast. Mm. Uh, we have already to start also at the political level and, and the group can take its, its primary role there you referred to uh, in looking at this EU-NATO matter and not just only focus on what the EU should do in the future and how it should be further reformed and adapted. You cannot separate anymore a geopolitical EU and a EU which has to play its own proper role in security and defense from a discussion on the future of NATO. They have to go hand in hand. Thank you very much. I think that's a very nice conclusion. Thank you for this conversation and thank you for your quick take on uh, the outcome of the NATO leaders meeting, which took place on 3 and 4 December. Thank you again for joining us. We will make sure to follow this important topic in our future 
Klingendal research efforts and Klingendal podcasts. Please take a look at publications from both Dixon Day and Kimberly Kreifer on uh, European security issues uh, on our website. And if you want to stay up to date about Café Klingendal, please register for our newsletter at www.klingendal.org.